The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast contains sensitive topics and discussions. Listener discretion is advised. Previously on Direct Appeal. Oh, I took my wife, fell asleep in the bathtub, and I think she's dead. Come up here, she was laying face down in the bathtub. Obviously, I had never had to use, you know, perform CPR on anybody or mouth to mouth, anything like that, so I had no clue really what I was doing. She's crying and she said Sarah died last night. Well, I mean, everybody just wanted answers. Not so fast. This is the most laid back, easygoing guy I have ever known. And there is absolutely no way that he would do this. You get that kid a lawyer. Innocent people get convicted in this country every day. It's not like we have a bunch of murder attorneys on Rolodex. Her brother stood in front of the judge and said, in our heart of hearts, we do not believe that he did this. This is episode three, Into the Fray. On last episode, we broke down the controversial 911 phone call Ryan made on the night of Sarah's death. We talked about how Ryan and his family were coping. And today we're going to talk about the days that followed. The morning after Sarah's death, Tuesday, August 12th, Ryan called his work to let them know what happened and that, of course, he wouldn't be in. His bosses called an emergency meeting to alert the staff. But already that morning, a local TV station ran a brief blurb of the story, simply stating that a woman drowned and an autopsy was being performed. The details were unclear. You know, they didn't say anything about drugs or alcohol being involved. Nothing was known at this point or publicized. But I think when you read a woman drowned and an autopsy being performed, there's always the question like, oh, was there foul play? Sure. But I would think also we've had discussions about autopsies and when they should be performed or not. I'm going to say unless it is super obvious what happened, like a a fall uh, when someone's by themselves or whatnot, any 24-year-old woman that dies, there's going to be an autopsy. Yes, you're absolutely right. It would be suspicious if they did not do an autopsy. So yeah, I don't think it was outside the norm that they decided to conduct an autopsy. Mm -hmm. But you're right. When you read that in a line together, it does alert like suspicion immediately. Lieutenant Jeff Braley called Ryan on this day to update him about the investigation into Sarah's death. Jeff Braley is going to be a key player. He's really the lead investigator on Sarah's case. So Tuesday, August 12th, we went to the funeral home. It was just making the funeral arrangement. Obviously, it's nothing Sarah and I had ever, had ever talked about. Um, and that, that day, um, we were going to leave as when Sarah's brother uh, told me that the detective Braley um, had called him and they were trying to get a hold of me. So when we got in the car, um, it was Sarah's mom, her aunt, me, and my mom. I called Detective Braley, and he basically just said, wanted to touch base with me to kind of learn about what was going on. And you know, I'm like, oh, okay, great. I really want to know what's going on. And he asked if I could come in. I said, yeah, I could come in right now. And he said, no, no, just wait till tomorrow morning. We just kind of want to update you on the investigation. So 
that was where that conversation left for me to come in the next morning, which would have been Wednesday. None of us thought anything uh, uh, skeptical of it. I mean, I didn't even think twice about it. I just thought they were going to tell me what happened to her. I guess I was naive in the fact that, you know, didn't even understand that, it, you know, he was a, a detective, not a doctor. So um, I didn't even think twice about it. And then, and really, even at that point, I don't think it was really sunk in too much that anything was going to happen. It wasn't until later on in the evening. People came over to my mom's, obviously, just for to console everybody and whatnot. And uh, her friend, Kathy Cook, basically told my mom, like, you know, he should really get an attorney if he's going to talk to this cop tomorrow morning. And so my mom told me, and I'm just like, no, why? What do I need an attorney for? So anyways, later on in that night, I got on the phone with my friend Zach, who was a defense attorney, and he basically told me after I kind of explained everything, he's like, oh yeah, he's like, you need to get an attorney. So Kathy, through whoever, she got a hold of Charlie Rickers, uh, and I ended up on the phone with Charlie Rickers that night, and he, I walked him through everything, what had happened, and he, he said, I don't care if you hire me or not, and he said, but do not go in there tomorrow morning without, a, without an attorney. Seems like Ryan got a lot of good advice from the people around him, huh? Yes, he's very lucky because not everyone is getting that type of advice. I mean, did it end up helping him? I'm not sure. Well, not necessarily. I mean, this happened actually in season one, too, when we were talking about Melanie. Uh, Melanie was also fortunate, if you recall, that she had a strong support system and she also had money Mm -hmm. to hire an attorney. And usually uh, that works out better for you. And it it didn't work out for her. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you could say it will work out for Ryan, but I can say this. If Ryan had gone in by himself and answered questions, I don't know that he would have fared any better. I was going to say, how much worse could it have gone, though? Well, we already talked about his sentence in the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. We talked about this, the fact that he was, it's not a spoiler alert, he was convicted eventually and sentenced 15 years to life. However... If he had gone in and spoken, they would be then interpreting everything he said, right? So then it, it's not just the 911 call. Then it's not just what he said immediately. They would be interpreting his affect, mm-hmm. his stories. They'd try to confuse him. He'd probably have gotten flustered. Maybe he would have falsely confessed. Who knows? That's what I'm saying. So he could have either falsely confessed or they might be like, you know what? I think we see real premeditation and we're going to go for a top charge. So That's there was. True. I think it could have worked out worse for him. And I think he did get some really good advice about getting an attorney. And Charles Rickers, who we'll get to in a minute, Charlie, as he calls him, was his attorney. But meanwhile, Sarah's autopsy was conducted at the Miami Valley Regional Crime Laboratory by Dr. Russell Updegrove, who was the Warren County coroner. And Doyle Burke was present as well. If you recall, Doyle Burke did the initial examination at the hospital. And didn't he conclude that there was no signs of trauma to the body? He did. But that's an initial um, examination. So Updegrove issued a preliminary ruling on her cause of death because he's doing the full autopsy. And the cause of death was drowning. The manner of death, he said homicide. That escalated quickly. Very quickly, Amy. Burke seemed like, if I recall, his report was that there was no telltale signs of murder. Absolutely. But there's no record of the conversation they had afterwards, or maybe one influenced the other. Maybe nothing at all happened. But we don't know if there were external factors that influenced. This was a very quick ruling, too quick. They don't need to provide reasoning for their assessment. 
Well, he does provide reasoning, and we will go through that. Mm -hmm. And we did contact Dr. Updegrove, but as we'll continue to say, if Dr. Updegrove is listening and would like to come on the show and discuss his findings, we would be very happy to speak with you still. But the tides had changed here because we were talking about an initial finding of an accident. We don't see any telltale signs of murder. And now he's declaring this a homicide. And really, this sets the wheels in motion to charge Ryan with killing Sarah, though Ryan still wasn't quite aware of this. He knew that he was under some type of suspicion, right? And I, I think he knew they were investigating it, but I don't think it had at all sunk in that he was going to be charged with a serious crime. Well, at this point, it doesn't seem like there was much evidence against him. I don't think he thought so. But now, instead of Sarah's uh, death being a tragic accident, it's a murder, and there's um, only one suspect. Well, that's exactly right. There's only one possible suspect. So that's also a problem. It's not like you can point to anyone else. They were clearly alone in the home. Yeah, exactly. And there was no sign. I remember you saying earlier, there was no sign of a forced entry or break in or it was very clear that he was the only person in the home. He was the only person. But I have to tell you that I spoke with our pathologist who I'll introduce in a little bit. And I've read in forensic books, taught a crime forensics class that there are other factors that should influence autopsies. Have you heard this before too? Yeah, but I don't necessarily agree. Okay, well, why? If I understand correctly, some of those factors include looking at the person's relationship. They're kind of doing a, almost like a victimology, like doing a profile on them. Mm -hmm. I just think we should look at the evidence in front of you and not be clouded with all these other things. I guess some would counter that by saying it completes the picture. For example, you look at Ryan's case and they find that there's, oh, well, he has uh, a girlfriend on the side. He has a large insurance on her. I'm not saying that it's it for should. the court to decide, though, not for a coroner. Well, some coroners or medical examiners. And by the way, there's a difference between mm -hmm. one coroner is the old term. Medical, exa medical examiner is the more um, recent one. And some say that all the factors together taken together help the ruling. I understand your point. I don't necessarily agree with that. Mm -hmm. I've just heard that and read that before. Mm -hmm. But also one thing, they didn't have Sarah's medical records. They couldn't have had them that quickly. How would they know her prior history? Did she have a seizure disorder? Did she have, yes, her mother and Ryan could answer those questions, but there's actual documents that should be used in these determinations. It also doesn't make sense to me because there were no defensive wounds there were, I know we're going to talk about other things on her body that were questionable, right? But generally speaking, there were no defensive wounds. There were no wounds on Ryan. There was no reason for them to look at this as a homicide. You unless know they knew something I don't know. I can answer that. I mean, I, can, okay. I know exactly what the answer is to that. No other viable explanation. Yeah. But that's awful. That's not at all the standard. But <laughs> that's know. nobody mm -hmm. nobody can wrap their mind around a healthy 24-year-old woman dying in her tub from some unknown cause. Mm -hmm. And I think that's the answer. There's going to be more answers along the way, by the way. And I I'll, I'll, will describe some of the reasons why perhaps he was charged and why this became so salacious. But as you mentioned, you don't even have the medical records yet. No. No, uh, this is a deterrent. So I think this is way too early to make this determination. I mean, we're talking about a couple days here. And as you just heard in the, the last clip, Zach Zaz, an attorney and friend of Ryan, urged him to get an attorney. His cousin Sean did, his mother, his family. And he, he said that he was he contacted and retained Charles Rickers. Oh, Charles Rickers. He is a very successful lawyer in that area. We know him. He was a past president of the Ohio Association of Criminal Defense Lawyers. 
But the reason why I know his name is he won some really huge settlements because he does a lot of work in malpractice and civil, not just criminal. So his practice, I think he's about one third criminal. But Does that make him a boutique when you do like a a number of things? Okay. But I don't remember if it was in the interview we had with him or if I read this somewhere, but murder wasn't very common in this area of Ohio. So a lot of his cases were malpractice, civil cases. But he's a member, have you ever heard of this, the Million Dollar and Multi-Million Dollar Advocates Forum? No, what is that? I have no idea what that is. It's a group limited to lawyers who have won million or multi-million dollar verdicts and settlements. I want to be a member of that club. (laughs) (laughs) You got to go to law school first, Dave. I know, but isn't that interesting? Oh, that really is. Uh, And I didn't realize that he practiced that much um, in terms of civil. Oh, yeah, he's very successful in malpractice and civil. He was definitely a prosecutor as well. He was also like president of like the county's bar association. Like he's a big deal. Right move for Ryan. Well, we'll see if it was the right move for Ryan, but he was a very, very reputable attorney and we did get the chance to speak with him. And, you know, we asked him what his opinion was when he initially heard from Ryan. When I first got the call from one of his uh, family friends, I believe I immediately called him there right after that. And in talking with him, I did not think at that point that there was a murder case. They didn't arrest him that night, meaning the night that Sarah died. And based on what I was hearing at that moment, I I did not think it was a murder case. And by the way, he had already talked to the police after he called 911 when they arrived. He talked to the coroner's uh, investigator that evening at the hospital where Sarah was pronounced dead. And knowing that, and knowing that he had not been arrested, that's why I didn't think it was going to be a murder case. So basically, he thought that he was just going in to like hold his hand while Ryan gave a statement. Yeah, little did he know he was in for much bigger involvement. But we also asked him, you know, what were his, not just impressions of the case, but what did he think about Ryan? He was a quiet kind of guy, very polite, respectful, very nice, straightforward. I had him go in minute detail as to everything that happened that evening that he could remember. And he did. Uh, I believe he was watching TV downstairs to when he found Sarah, to call 911, to how he took her out of the tub as as instructed by the 911 operator to when he moved Sarah with the help of the first responder, which happened to be a police officer, into the bedroom. And he described how he actually picked her up out of the tub, et cetera, et cetera. So to me, uh, as an attorney, I dealt with several thousand people in my career just as clients. And to me, uh, he seemed uh, honest and obviously innocent. That's a pretty strong declaration coming out of the gates. I think probably too strong. Yeah, I think probably so. Um, I mean, he said that he didn't fit the profile. And now I do understand. uh, I know I see you waving your hand. (laughs) So I, I think that everyone's describing Ryan kind of the same way. Um, But how many cases do we know where the husband did not fit the profile? Well, especially at first glance, right? So 
when you do some digging, there are patterns that emerge. But at first glance, I would say most people said Scott Peterson and Chris Watts were quiet, nice, good family men. Oh, yeah, with no histories. Picture perfect family, white, middle class, no history of violence, but mm-hmm. leading scandalous double lives with cheating and girlfriends. And But I think it's important to also note that there was no history of violence. Of course, you can't accurately predict violence, right? There's no way to do that. Mm. But we know that there are patterns, right? So prior domestic violence is by far the number one risk factor in these types of cases, Mm -hmm. right? So the murder or violence almost always comes as an escalation of behavior that usually starts with psychological abuse and control. Now, do we know exactly what was going on in the marriage? Of course not. But it sounds like Sarah was the type of person that would have told her, number one, she sounds like she wouldn't have put up with any bullshit. Yeah. I think she would have told him. She had a lot of very close friends. And I think there would have been signs or something. But of course, there's no way to predict. But most women who are murdered by their husbands have already been abused by them in some way. I think that's a fair point, Amy. Obviously, there are women that are adept at hiding this. But I don't think there was really much of an insinuation here that Ryan was abusive. I think this is more of a he snapped kind of thing. I don't think there there was never an established pattern of Ryan being abusive towards Sarah that I could see. And we know people snap, of course, but it's not as common as some of these other situations. Right. And it doesn't apply to this, but I just want to say that there are predictions of dangerousness. We have like actuarial tools where we can predict the level of violence or level of dangerousness among certain offenders. But what I'm saying, if he's he doesn't have a criminal history, so you can't just by looking at someone no. say, you know, but you're right, of course, you can predict dangerousness or future violent behavior. But That usually works with an offender-based situation. With someone with no history, then there's no real accurate prediction of any type of dangerousness. So Charlie said that nothing about the case seemed suspicious to him. He said Ryan paid him $1,000 to handhold during the meeting with the police on the morning of the 13th. However, that meeting would never happen. And in fact, Charlie Rickers called Lieutenant Braley on behalf of Ryan. And when they spoke, Braley said he didn't want to talk to Ryan anymore. He assumed that Ryan was guilty. Ryan hiring a lawyer added fuel to this fire for those who doubted his innocence. And this story became a media sensation. Again, totally unfair uh, to judge someone guilty because they exercised their right to hire a lawyer to protect their freedom. People who believed that Ryan was guilty would attack his supporters for being naive or being stupid, for believing that Sarah had fallen asleep and drowned in the tub. His supporters would say that the prosecution's case was weak, that there really wasn't any evidence that he did anything, and that Ryan would never have harmed Sarah. Images of Ryan were all over the TV, newspapers and internet. This is very sensational. And one of the reasons is because this was like the first homicide that I think had happened in this area in something close to a decade. It sparks people's interest because you wouldn't expect it. Yes. It's this happy, newlywed, white, middle-class couple from this quiet little town. It's, as you said, it's sensationalized, but people grab onto stories like that. I think so. After Rickers spoke with Lieutenant Braley, Ryan spoke to Rickers and he and his mom, Ryan and his mother, essentially went to Rickers' office together. And it was then that Rickers gave Ryan some very shocking news. I had no idea. Yeah. I mean, I just, everything's kind of coming together at that point. And now I'm starting to be getting more and more scared because I'm just like, I'm not understanding what's making this kind of trickle to the point where it's at. And uh, and then he, he called me and told me 
that they didn't want to talk to me anymore and that they were performing another search warrant on my house and that I should I should go in to his office. Well, I went and sat in his office, and that's basically when he told me they're probably going to charge me with murder. I didn't know what to say. I mean, I didn't, I didn't feel anything other than just, like, uh, I mean, swift pain in my stomach, like, you know, just complete knots, like, like nothing I'd ever felt before. You have one minute remaining. And I just couldn't believe it. I kept asking him why. I don't understand. So now the new media headlines on the 13th and the 14th really read Hamilton Township Murder. Amy, can you read us some of those headlines that were going around? On August 14th, the Cincinnati Inquirer, which was one of the most popular papers in the area, posted an article, the main title of the article, New Husband Charged in Tub Death, and then the byline, Suspect Calls it an Accident, and then in another area, Prosecutor Cited Trauma to Body. I read this one, Amy, and it was an early report, so I thought this one was pretty even-keeled, citing Ryan's lack of criminal history, a lot of his supporters, they were newlyweds. There was an indication from the prosecutor about the trauma, but I still felt this was not biased, but maybe more favorable to Ryan in this early report. All right, Megan, well, just the next day, there was an article, quote, death charges come as a shock to some. And in this article, Sarah's mother was quoted as saying the following, quote, there was a time when even before she met Ryan, she fell asleep in the tub. So to have it blow out of proportion all over the news like it was some kind of criminal cover up, it just befuddles me. Yeah, I think I mean, that's just so shows you the support early on for Ryan. Sarah's mother was very supportive. I mean, she she said on record, Sarah fell asleep in the tub. And I saw one more on the 16th that read, quote, husband faces aggravated murder charges. Quote, there was a violent struggle. Sarah Widmer's death is Hamilton Township's first homicide in about 10 years and could be Warren County's first intentional drowning of an adult in decades, officials said. What's disturbing about this is that Ryan and his team, they didn't even have a preliminary report yet, but yet he's facing aggravated murder. But it's not only that, it's that Officials are saying there was a violent struggle, but there's no report coming out yet. So this doesn't look good, but I will say Sarah's family was still supporting Ryan. And in this article, in fact, it said that Sarah's brother went on the record to say that they 100% supported Ryan. This is problematic because this is tainting the potential jury pool in this trial. Absolutely. And very early on. Things have to fly into action now here. Once Rickers learned that Ryan was going to be charged with murder, he started strategizing pretty quickly. And he did something pretty smart, which was he reached out to Dr. Werner Spitz, famed forensic pathologist. He's testified in a lot of cases. I think most people in this world, in the crime field, definitely know who he is. But for people who don't, Amy, can you talk about maybe some of the cases? I think most famously, Werner Spitz was an advisor to the Rockefeller Commission where he reviewed the autopsy performed on President John F. Kennedy. Right. And he called it a botched autopsy. Oh, was that his conclusion? I knew he reviewed it. I didn't know. What yeah, he-, he pretty much said the military pathologist who performed the autopsy had no experience in forensic pathology at all. Not, not necessarily conspiracy, more so that the field was just in its younger stages at that point. Right, because that's the 1960s, right? So Yeah, the commission was, I believe, in the mid-70s. He also consulted with a committee on the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King. One I know that you know that he worked on Casey Anthony's case. 
He actually testified for the defense in the trial of Casey Anthony. I knew he worked on that case, and I did know he testified for the defense, too. And um, I kind of forgot, though. Yeah, he he disagreed with the prosecution's medical examiner, and he said that her work was shoddy. So he's not afraid to call it when he thinks something's not right here. He's definitely not afraid to call it. I think he, like, criticized her for something, like, about failing to open up the skull to look for sediment. It all had to do with, like, the positioning of Kaylee's body. Mm Mm-hmm. If you recall that. He also worked on the O.J. Simpson case. Yes, he worked on the Simpson trial, but not the criminal trial that the world was watching. Rather, he was retained by the Goldman family after in their civil suit against Simpson. And he had some very key findings here. One was that the cuts on Simpson's hands were not due to the broken glass, as he reported, but rather from fingernails. You know, what was also significant about his testimony, because I do remember this and I read the book about the civil trial was his finding that the same knife was used on both Ron and Nicole. Because this dispelled the idea that it could have been two perpetrators, which was, interestingly, suggested by another famous pathologist, Dr. Michael Bodden. Uh, Spitz and Bodden are friends, too, but they opposed each other on this matter, if memory serves. And I think it does, obviously, because I was paying close attention. Did you know he had something to do with John Benet Ramsey case? Did he, he was a consultant. He reviewed the records? No. Nope. He actually claimed on a documentary or he stated that he believes Burke Ramsey was the one responsible for killing John Benet Ramsey. So Burke Ramsey filed a $150 million defamation suit against Warner Spitz. Wow. Happened about maybe like four or five years ago. So I'm not sure if it's been resolved, but I thought that was an interesting little tidbit. I don't want to get too off track here, but do we know, like, how did he make his determination? He had to do a record review of some type. He just gave his expert opinion, I believe, mm-hmm. by want, looking at documents, you know, existing yeah, that's documents. What, that's what I'm but, saying. He did like a record review. Like, but I mean, good for Burke Ramsey. I mean, you can't just go around saying things like that, even if you're Werner Spitz. I mean, I guess you you can or well, you can't. I, mean, I guess the courts yeah. will decide. I guess we'll figure it out. Okay. I guess so. Regardless, Warner Spitz obviously is one of those well, well-known forensic pathologists. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he Ryan's clearly doing as much as he can. He has the right team behind him. He definitely does. So meanwhile, the police got a warrant for Ryan's arrest for murder. He was advised to turn himself into the police and he agreed to do so. But... On the evening of the 13th, Lieutenant Braley and other officers arrived at Ryan's lawyer's office, Charles Rickers, to arrest Ryan. With his twin brother and his mother there, they read Ryan his rights, cuffed him, and it took him to the station to be booked with media in tow. So what's the point here? I think this was 100% for show because shortly after they had a news conference with Braley and Rachel Hutzel. She was the Warren County head prosecutor at the time. And this is all just like 48 hours after Sarah's death. And I think that this that was it. She wanted to make that show and, and have that clip. You could argue the opposite, though, right? Because oh, like saying, they don't want him to flee. I think it was a show and I think it was an act of like bravado. And I think they wanted the media but coverage. But the other side of it, they know he got word that he was going to be arrested and they don't want to take the chance that he might flee. I mean, look what happened to with the Gabby Petito case. That's exactly what came to my mind, right? They kept letting the investigators were letting Brian Laundry kind of walk around and he did disappear and eventually he died by suicide. I think they have to weigh it there. Do we want to take the chance? And it sounds like this police department, these prosecutors, like they don't want to be stuck with egg on their face. Oh no, they definitely didn't yeah. want to. They they're very I think they're very proud of their investigation and 
they feel very strongly about the case they have. And I don't think they want to take the chance. It's funny to feel so strongly, though, after 48 hours. If there were very clear... There's no smoking gun. That's what I'm saying. If there were very clear signs, then I understand, like, get behind it and rally behind it. But without, like, much evidence here, I'm not sure why they felt so strongly. But meanwhile, the police were tearing apart the Widmer's house looking for anything that might shed light on the couple's relationship. They also confiscated the entire bathtub, literally ripping it out of the bathroom. So the news conference that evening featured Warren County Prosecutor Hutzel and Lieutenant Braley, and it was announced that Ryan Widmer was arrested and jailed on a charge, on a murder charge, uh, alleging that he drowned his wife, Sarah Widmer, in the tub. It was also reported that the county coroner had found trauma to the body that was not consistent with a fall or accident. There was no further talk about the injuries, though, at this point. Okay, so they're just saying not consistent with, but they didn't get very detailed. However, they did say that the evidence wasn't very obvious at the scene. Rather, it was discovered during the autopsy. Well, that's because the initial medical examiner contradicts exactly what they just said. So they have to say that. I think you're absolutely right, Amy. And I have to tell you, people were just gripped by this story. Janice Hissel, journalist and author of the book Submerged, discusses her involvement and the intense interest in the Widmer case. This case, among all the hundreds of murder cases that I covered during my 27-year career, is the one with the most unanswered questions. There are homicides that aren't shocking. Um, They're still sad, don't get me wrong, but they're not shocking if, for example, Somebody was in a bad neighborhood or somebody was involved with drug activity. It was a drug deal gone bad. Um, Those deaths are kind of predictable, as sad as they are. But it's not predictable and it's more relatable when somebody in a quiet suburban neighborhood, a newlywed couple that look like the boy and girl next door, get caught up in this murder mystery. How much do you think the culture of the area played into what was going on? Yeah, I do, because I think I've heard it described as a law and order type community. And Rachel Hutzel, she was the first woman prosecutor in that area? That is absolutely correct. So I think, Amy, you're pointing out beyond the obvious interest in this young, they're newlyweds and there's no obvious signs. There's some politics going on here. There always is. Always. You just pointed out Rachel Hutzel was the first female prosecutor, and she was said to have embodied this law and order kind of culture feel to the area. She was also positioning herself to become a judge on the Ohio 12th District Court of Appeals. Didn't she later win, too? She did. She won this unopposed, and she was also the first woman in this role. Good for her. That's pretty badass. Well, let's see how we feel about that later. No, I'm kidding. No, that that's yes. certainly an yes. accomplishment. It's a, certainly an accomplishment, but let's hope it wasn't made off the back of yes. innocent yes, people. Yes, yes, you know yes. what I mean? But also, Braley, so you have Hutzel is mm-hmm. the lead prosecutor, and Lieutenant Braley was on track to become Hamilton Township's next police chief, mm. which is also, this is huge. These people are positioning for some very, very big jobs here. I can think of a few other cases where some big careers were made off of criminal cases. Um, For instance, Mark Burnett became a senator after his prosecution of Mary Beth Davis, who was found to poison her children. However, later it was found to be a wrongful conviction. Um, Rick DeStazzo, lead prosecutor on Scott Peterson. He was appointed Superior Court Judge by Arnold Schwarzenegger. 
And Rudy Giuliani built his career off the Mafia Commission, going after the five families. So there's a lot at stake in these big public trials. Okay, in the media, things aren't looking good, but Ryan would unexpectedly get support from someone else who had his eye on the media blitz storm. Gary Widmer. Is that his estranged father? That's correct. So his father was watching the evening news just a few days after Sarah's death and Ryan's arrest, and he saw the headline, Husband Charged in Tub Death, and then a mugshot of his estranged son, Ryan. Remember, he hadn't seen him since about 2000. It was about eight years that passed between that contentious divorce and, and Ryan speaking with his father. But right away, Gary Widmer reached out to Jill, Ryan's mother. And the two of them were able immediately to put their differences aside to help their son and prepare Ryan for really the fight of his life. Though a combined front now, neither of Ryan's parents had any idea of just what legal storm was coming their way. Next time on Direct Appeal, Ryan is indicted and gets ready for the fight of his life. Meanwhile, the prosecution will lay out its case against the man whose wife was found lifeless in their bathtub. Direct Appeal Season 2 is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga. Editing by Jose Alfonso. And special thanks to Janice Hissel, whose book Submerged was integral to this production. If you have a tip, you can submit through our website or by emailing us at tips at directappealpodcast.com. You can also help us out by following or leaving a review wherever you listen to your podcasts.